0: Hi everyone, this is Sarah from Better Babies and welcome to The Weekly. I don't know about you, but there seems to be so much interesting stuff out there, but I often just don't get the time to go through everything that I want and often feel like I've missed a lot of stuff. So we thought we probably weren't the only ones that feel this way. So we thought, why not just condense all the latest themes, trends, scientific research and expert opinion that we've been gathering in the previous week and put it together in one easy digestible podcast form so you definitely can't miss your better babies fix now of course these things are just the condensed highlights and much more details available on the site betterbabies.com now what is better babies well we're dedicated to bringing you the latest science and medical research to help you navigate conception pregnancy in the first few years of a little person's life now obviously this is the period of most vulnerability and most rapid development. Now the world looks very different from the one that existed just 50 years ago but we found that for the most part the advice just hasn't evolved. So what we're dedicated to doing is bringing you this in a digestible and practical way to help you reduce risk wherever you possibly can and help you and your family live the health- healthiest life that you can. So what are the topics this week? Okay so three main subjects on the podcast this week. First up is something that's quite close to my heart as a polycystic ovary sufferer. Um, it's PCOS and some very interesting research around how exercise and specific forms of exercise can make a meaningful difference on some of the hormonal imbalances that are rife if you suffer from PCOS. What's also interesting is this applies to some extent to endometriosis as well and the reality is these are two conditions that are not uncommon and two conditions that not only can have physical symptoms that can affect women whether they're trying for children or not but secondly it can make the process of trying to have a healthy baby that much more difficult so we look at some of the evidence and some of the real very practical things you can do in order to make these symptoms more manageable Next up, we're gonna be dealing with a pretty difficult subject and that is sudden infant death syndrome, um, also known as SIDS and also known as cot death. Now, no one wants to think about this, of course, but I think most parents, and me included, spent the first few days and weeks of bringing your baby home from hospital absolutely terrified that they were gonna stop breathing every time they were sleeping. So this, whether we like it or not, is very much on our minds. We look at some of the latest research around some of the risk factors and most importantly, as usual, some practical ways, given the science, that you can do things that can put you in a better position. And then finally, we look at one of our favourite topics, the gut, and some of the latest research that shows that very specific forms of probiotic can actually have pretty interesting positive benefit for a baby who's suffering from colic, or from regurgitation, also known as a sicky baby, which is what I had in the early days. So without further ado, let's dig in. Okay, so polycystic ovaries is something that's actually relatively common. And in fact, it is the most common reason why um, people have issues with fertility or specifically women have issues with fertility. Now, a lot of people also don't know they have polycystic ovaries, and I was one of those people, and often the time you really discover it is when you're trying to have a baby. Now, as usual, we are going to be looking at some of the latest science about ways you can deal with this, because there's no point talking about all these problems unless you have tangible science-backed reasons or um, science-backed evidence that can help you do something about it. So let's take a step back and really understand a bit more about polycystic ovaries and the root causes, because once we understand the root causes, we're more likely to be in a position to do something about it. So polycystic ovaries, um, or PCOS as it's more commonly known, is one of the most common hormonal disorders for women. And as I said, many people are not diagnosed until they have trouble getting pregnant. Now, as with many of these disorders, there is no one single cause, And as usual, it's often a combination of genetics or a combination of environment, lifestyle, also known as epigenetics. Now, in order to tackle this issue, it's always worth looking at the root cause. Now, polycystic ovaries can be expressed differently for different people. So I, for example, have almost no symptoms whatsoever, except for one, and that is my cycles are very long and sometimes I don't ovulate. However, different people have very different expressions of it. Now, if you wanna see a bit more detail, check out betterbabies.com. We do a full list, but some things are acne, um, facial hair, um, trouble controlling weight, and many, many other things. But one thing that is actually one of the most common features is something called insulin resistance, and this is a hormonal issue. Now, what does insulin resistance mean? Now this is basically when our cells fail to react, as they should to insulin, and that means more and more is produced in our blood. In fact, 70% of people with PCOS have some form of insulin resistance. Now you may know of insulin, it is the hormone that helps us control our blood sugar. So it's actually something that allows our cells to let in the sugar from foods that we eat and use it for energy. Now if you are having some form of insulin resistance it means that um, it is not causing your cells to allow this sugar in so it can cause more and more insulin to be produced and that has been linked to some of the effects that come about for those people who have PCOS. The bottom line however is that insulin resistance is very common in in women with polycystic ovaries and this is regardless of your weight because a lot of the times people think well I can't possibly have insulin resistance because I'm of normal weight but that's not actually true because a lot of the time the science suggests that even people that have what's known as lean PCOS which do not have an issue with their BMI can also have this insulin resistance. So if you suspect that you have PCOS or you've been told that you have It's absolutely worth asking your doctor to assess your insulin sensitivity, because sometimes it's a test that isn't done. And especially if you have a normal BMI, chances are your doctor won't have done it. And let's be honest, knowledge is power after all, and we're all individuals with different pictures, and it really helps to address a problem if you know what the problem is and what comes alongside with it. Now, why is insulin resistance so important when it comes to fertility? So, as we said, insulin is the hormone that allows our cells to use sugar or glucose for energy. Now, the problem is when we have too much insulin in our blood because our cells are not allowing this sugar to come in, we get several potential issues and one of them is a negative impact in fertility. And actually what happens is that, it, well, PCOS is actually associated with higher than normal level of male hormones, so known as adrogens, And actually, research is suggesting that one of the reasons women with PCOS suffer is because of this insulin resistance. Now, why does this matter for fertility? Now, people think of these male hormones as only common to men, but actually the reality is is things like testosterone are present in women as well. But of course, they are in a different level. Now, as I'm sure you can imagine, as a woman, you want some male sex hormones in your body, but you don't want too much. And... This is when um, some of these, um, I guess, symptoms linked to PCOS are are linked once again to testosterone. And it's things like acne, excess hair, irregular periods and lack of ov- ovulation, which actually is because you have these high levels of circulating testosterone. Now, why does that happen? One of the reasons is because When it comes to hormones, it's important that they're actually transported to the right place in our body. So we produce them, but they also need to get to the right place. Now, another common feature of people with PCOS is that the carrier molecule, something in this case known as sex hormone binding globulin, sounds a bit of a mouthful, but it's also known as SHBG, is too low. Now, this is the thing that takes the testosterone to where it needs to be versus allowing the testosterone to just wash around the body causing some of these effects. Now, the trouble is, too much insulin, again, can reduce the production of this vital carrier. Now, this might all seem pretty complicated, and it took me a bit of time to get my head around it, but one of the things that really helped me was reading a really good analogy from a guy called Dr. Jason Fung, who's a bit of a celebrity doctor in the US, and he puts it really, really nicely. He basically compares this, it's like trying to get to a meeting in, say, New York City, without jumping in a cab. If you walk to your meeting, you can be easily distracted by all sorts of things on the way. You can go into shops, you can get coffee, you can get caught by someone on the the sidewalk who's trying to knock you off. And think of SHBG as this taxi getting you directly to your meeting. And SHBG is the taxi for testosterone. If you have enough taxis, then the testosterone can get directly to where it's supposed to be, rather than stopping on the way and causing all kinds of unwanted symptoms. So this is a very long winded way of saying, if you don't have high enough levels of this transport compound, you can have all this testosterone going rogue and basically exerting its influence on other areas of the body and causing people uh, issues essentially with reproduction and the other associated issues of PCOS, which is why it's very, very common. So. Stepping back, can all this knowledge help us treat polycystic ovaries and reduce the symptoms? Because let's be honest, that's the most important thing. There's no point analyzing all this stuff unless we can use it to help us out. And here's where the good news is. So whilst not every person with polycystic ovaries has an issue with insulin resistance, a lot do. And if we can deal with insulin resistance, then maybe we can help deal with this problem. So, how do you reduce insulin and, our bod- and improve our body's sensitivity to insulin effectively? Now, this is where exercise comes in. What some of the research has suggested, and again, check out the website betterbabies.com for all the details, but the research is suggesting a strong link between insulin sensitivity and certain form of exercise when done on a regular basis. And the good news is this can benefit not only those with a higher BMI, who will particularly benefit as weight reducers, but also those who have a normal BMI. And how does it do it? Basically by increasing the body's lean muscle mass. And that has been shown to play a really important role in helping the body control blood sugar and insulin sensitivity. So how does it work? Well, lean muscle mass, which is basically what happens when you do resistance training, has been shown quite consistently quite consistently to promote greater insulin sensitivity, and that's because it's basically responsible for up to 80% of the insulin-dependent glucose uptake. In fact, when you look at the American College of Sports Medicine, they recommend strength training and progressive resistance training, and the studies that they talk about have shown, again, a real benefit in reducing serum concentration of testosterone and fasting glucose levels. And remember, it's the testosterone floating about, rogue in the body that's causing issues. And the most interesting part, especially for someone like me who struggled with ovulation, is that many of the women in the test, or the study I should say, who were experiencing issues with ovulation showed an improvement. And this is not isolated to one study either, because we're always a bit wary of just taking one study and running with it. In fact, several other studies have reported an improved menstrual cycle and ovulatory frequency after this resistance training. And once again, it's because there have been changes in not only insulin sensitivity, but then male hormone levels. Now, the good news is it doesn't end there either. There are some other benefits. Now, there are two additional factors linked to PCOS, which are pretty, pretty fascinating and can also be helped by resistance training. Now, if, like me, you struggle with PCOS and you also struggle with anxiety, well, guess what? They may be linked. So one study in particular looked at the link between anxiety and stress hormones and actually argued that people with PCOS can have a lower resistance to stress. So it's not actually your fault. Um, And it can be linked to higher anxiety. And we all know that when you get a good workout on, it can really help the levels of the feel-good hormones like endorphins Serotonin and get that blood flowing and help you feel better. So, once again, there's another reason, and that can be particularly helpful for reducing stress that's associated quite often with trouble conceiving. Secondly, resistance training has been shown very positive benefits, again, when done in the right way, around something called inflammation and particularly chronic inflammation. And what's interesting is that chronic inflammation is also associated with another issue that stops people getting pregnant or can make it more difficult and that is endometriosis. Now what is common to both endometriosis and PCOS is that in many cases both sufferers have this slightly elevated level of inflammation. Now just to recap and there's tons more on the site, Inflammation is good, it's your body's defense mechanism. The trouble is when you get it too much at a low level and it's constantly switched on. And this has been linked to many issues, but as I said, PCOS and endometriosis is, is, are two prime examples. Now, resistance training can be another powerful tool to reduce this inflammation in the body. So once again, another reason. So if we didn't need more reasons, here they are. Now the question is, what is the right type of of exercise? Once again, we've got tons more on the site from our resident expert, pre and postnatal trainer, Natalie Ferris. But basically, you want to be doing resistance exercises, which is using your body weight, using bands, and try and, or just simply try and move your body at least every day. Once again, we've got tons more on the site about that in particular, but also other ways to tackle PCOS specifically. So, we look at um, supplements that actually do have evidence and science backing. Um, And also, we go into a lot more detail about inflammation and particularly chronic inflammation. So, if you want a little bit more on that, check it out. But I will say, as somebody who's gone through my own journey with PCOS, I can tell you that it makes a real meaningful difference if you can get some of these things right. And personally, resistance training has been a massive positive, so I'd definitely check it out. So next up is not a particularly nice subject. Um, sometimes I find that when we tackle these tricky uh, and contentious subjects that it can cause people just to want to switch off. But our approach is that unfortunately sometimes horrible things do happen, but the best thing you can do is to be prepared and know your risks. And when it comes to cot death or sudden infant death syndrome, this is no exception. Now. I can personally attest to the fact that it is probably fair to say that this is one of the things that new parents fear the most. It is a massive source of anxiety and it has definitely been known to drive most parents mad and certainly drive that urge to go in every five minutes and check the baby's still breathing. I know that's something that I did for pretty much the first few months of my son's life. what we want to do is to really try and understand what are the real science-based risk factors that have been identified and therefore most importantly what you can do as parents or parents-to-be to reduce the risks wherever you possibly can now as usual unfortunately there is no easy fix or guarantee that you can stop the worst case which obviously we would love to have but again doing positive things and being aware what the science really says could be a potential risk factor is never going to be a bad thing. Now, we really hope that knowledge here is empowering and you can feel just a little bit better that you're doing something positive. So let's take a step back. We know that the riskiest time for a baby when it comes to SIDS is the first six months of life with the peak incidence basically being between two and four months old. Now the good news is the risk subsides then from six months onwards and it comes down to basically very little from a year old. So the question is, what actually causes it? Now this is where it's pretty frustrating because despite millions and millions of dollars spent on research over many, many decades, the reality is we're yet to find a single proven cause. That's not ideal. But there are various arguments which really center around a combination of risk factors at this point at least put together which essentially amount to basically lots and lots of little stress factors that basically overwhelm a body's ability to cope and regulate itself so what we're going to do here is take a look at them what these risk factors are and most importantly once again what you as a parent can do to reduce your baby's risk as a result of what we've learned from the science. So first off, sad to say, and yet another thing frustratingly people can't really do much about, but one of the biggest risk factors is a premature birth. Now, it doesn't take a genius to work out that babies born prematurely are inherently more vulnerable. Of course, there are numerous reasons behind why this may be. So. It's a combination of susceptibility to infection, early life stresses, reduced neurodevelopment, low birth weight, systemic inflammation. But essentially, it all amounts to a reduced ability to regulate stress response to all these external factors. Now, of course, as a parent, there is not much you can do about your child being born prematurely. However, as usual, there is some good news And the good news is that there are things that science has shown can be helpful in reducing the risks associated with an increase in SIDS so number one improving weight gain and reducing stress in a premature baby is good for everything and interestingly enough some of the latest research has shown significant benefit simply from parents interacting as much as possible and as much as safe in the earliest days and being incorporating into the daily care of the child within the neonatal intensive care unit. Now, we've got tons of about this on the site, but the good news is that there is something you can do to help. Secondly, there have been some really interesting latest research, and very tangible research around the role that music can play in the earliest days when it comes to not only stress, stress relief, but more importantly, brain development, both of which have been shown to be potentially lacking and causing potential issues related to sudden infant death syndrome. So these are two things that as a parent of a premature baby, you can definitely get on board with. And both things can actually help reduce some of the factors that have been shown to contribute potentially to an increased risk of sudden infant death. Now, another factor that you as a parent might not be able to change, but can have an increased risk is the fact that statistically baby boys are more likely to have um, SIDS than female babies now i'm a mother of a baby boy and i actually didn't know this until recently but in fact the ratio is pretty high so it's 60 40. so of course you can't help if you have a boy or a girl nor should you want to help it they're both wonderful in their own way But again, all you can do in this situation is be vigilant and reduce the other risk factors, which we're gonna talk about as much as you possibly can. So what are the other risk factors that can affect everybody, regardless if you have a premature baby or a baby boy? So the first is a pretty obvious one, which is great because the awareness around this has become so much more um, and this is only a positive thing. So most of us now know that putting a baby to sleep on its belly is not the right thing to do. So this is known as lying prone, aka lying on the stomach. Now the statistics shows that this more than triples the risk. So simple tick box number one, which most of us now know, is placing a baby to sleep on its back. Now the question is, why does this make such a difference? Because I always heard that this makes a difference, but I never knew why. Now there are a variety of explanations, but one particularly interesting, explanation is linked to our old friend the gut and more specifically the gut microbiome and immunity. So in fact some of the early studies have shown differences between the gut microbiome of SIDS babies compared to healthy babies. Now of course there is tons of complexity around this and we don't quite fully understand the gut at the moment but we also know that lying on the belly enhances basically ingestion and inhalation of bacteria from the sleeping surface. Now this leads us on to the other thing which is you basically need to ensure that your baby sleeps on a new and clean mattress with their sheets and bedding changed regularly. The other thing I also heard and again it was never really explained to me why is that when you have a new baby you always have to have a fresh mattress. I was fine with that but I didn't quite understand why and once again this is Perhaps one of the reasons. Now, of course, that also leads on to the fact that co sleeping, which is a choice that some parents make, also does increase the risks. Now, evidence shows that the longer a parent in an infant bedshare, the higher the risk for sleep related causes of infant death. Now, of course, this includes suffocation, but it's also been linked to the mattress being contaminated. So, in fact, a review of nearly 20 studies from all across the world with thousands of SIDS cases, showed that even for low-risk infants, bed-sharing was associated with this five-fold increase in SIDS in the first three months of life. Now, similarly, putting a baby to sleep on a sofa is also a risk, so there's an American study reporting that um, as much as 13% of infant sleep-related deaths were on sofas, and once again, this is in part being led to, um, being linked to a contaminated surface. So putting this all together, the absolute best bet is a Moses basket, the fresh mattress and the same room as you and simple organic cotton fitted sheet. So if you can do that, that's automatically putting yourself in a better position. Next up, again, pretty obvious, but smoking. So we know that a smoking mother or smoke near a new baby can significantly increase the risk of SIDS. And once again, It's being linked in part to these all-important microbes established within a mother. So, for example, smoking mothers have a different microbiome makeup and actually increase the risk of bacterial or viral colonization in their infants. Of course, it's a similar picture with drugs and alcohol, it's pretty obvious. But a simple thing of ensuring that people who consume alcohol, smoke, take drugs, if they're gonna do it, they do it well away from your baby at all times. is just a really important, once again, a simple thing to do. Next up is breastfeeding. Now, we know there are many, many reasons that breast milk has a number of very significant long-term health benefits, not only for a baby's brain, but for its immunity. And of course, the development of our favorite healthy gut microbiome. Now, once again, we have so much about this on the site, but again, Another reason, statistically, babies who have breast milk are at lower risk for SIDS than babies who are never fed breast milk at all. And the research also suggests that the longer you can do it, the lower the risk where it comes to SIDS. And once again, talking about um, premature babies, this is not necessarily breastfeeding directly, but it's just making sure that your baby gets some breast milk. So if that's pumping and feeding through a syringe or a tube, then you're doing awesome. So trying to prioritise that as much as you possibly can is definitely a good thing to do. Next up is sleeping with a pacifier or a dummy. Now, I don't know about you, but um, certainly my mother used to be horrified about me using a dummy with my son. I think the uh, previous generation didn't really believe in these, but actually they have been shown to reduce risks. There are a couple of important points related to it, though. Firstly, avoid using it until breastfeeding is well established, so around three to four weeks of age. And then the other important thing is don't attach it to a string, clothing, stuffed toy or a blanket because, again, this can carry risk of suffocation, choking or strangulation. You have to keep your baby's bed very clear of any things that can possibly choke or suffocate. The third thing is if your baby doesn't want to take it, don't force your baby to use it. And if it falls out of the baby's mouth during sleep there's no need to put it back in and again there's research linked to that that's up on the site now one other slightly contentious risk factor is circumcision now my son has been circumcised and I didn't know about this actually until more recently so I have certainly mixed feelings but of course it's a very personal choice based on culture based on religion which was the case in my part um, But unfortunately, whilst the jury is still out as to exactly why or how this works, statistically, it is linked to an increased risk of SIDS. So I think the best way is if you do make the decision to circumcise your son, and of course, that's a very personal decision. We're not making any judgments there. My son has been circumcised for extra clarity. Then again, just extra vigilance is warranted. So then finally, what do you actually do when your baby is in bed? Firstly, one suggestion is putting baby in what's known as the feet-to-foot position. So that means that their feet are touching the end of the cot, Moses basket or pram. Although notably, they should not sit for long periods in the car seat or the pram. Moses basket really is best for longer naps. Next thing is basically keep your baby's head uncovered and blankets should be tucked in no higher than their shoulders, again, Interestingly enough, looking at statistics, if a blanket is tucked higher than the shoulders, it can cause risk of SIDS to increase by as much as five times. Then once again, coming back to the mattress, use one that's firm, flat, waterproof and new. Just covered with a simple fitted sheet, no other bedding, soft items in the sleep area. Now, evidence does not support using cot bumpers to prevent injury. In fact, they're linked to serious injuries and even death from suffocation. So just say no to a cot bumper, it's just not necessary. The other thing to do is avoid products that go against any kind of safe sleep recommendation or any claim that they can really reduce the risk of SIDS. There is no way or no known way to fully prevent SIDS. And actually there is no evidence to suggest these safety wedges or other items that claim to keep infants in a specific position to reduce the risk of SIDS. If you're offered a product that promises to prevent it, just be wary because really no one product prevents it. It's best just to keep it simple. Now, temperature is, of course, another factor. We all know that new babies can struggle with their temperature. And a simple thing, just not letting your baby get too hot or too cold is the key. Now, a room temperature between 16 to 20 degrees Celsius with light bedding, a swaddle or a lightweight baby sleeping bag Will provide a comfortable sleeping environment for your baby that's safe now of course illness in a temperature in particular is the time to be extra vigilant and if you're in doubt you should just always contact your healthcare provider as unfortunately sid's risk is linked to illness in babies so you might fear being that annoying parents always calling the doctor but you know what i my motto is always best to be safe than sorry i'm sure my doctor hates that motto but it is what it is now what tools can be helpful? Now, again, the really crucial point to note is there is no product out there that can fully protect or prevent SIDS because we just don't understand it fully for now. So as much as we wish we were there was one, you cannot rely on one product. And certainly if you get offered a product that claims to make a meaningful difference, be pretty wary. So once again, all we can really do is reduce risks where we can and increase our vigilance. Now there are some tools to help us do this, but again these are not enough in their own and should not be completely relied on because vigilance is never going to be a substitute for these uh, new technologies now that's not to say that we can't use them to help with vigilance now one of the most basic things that most parents have i have one uh, is a simple temperature monitor i had a little egg um, that reads the temperature but also they come with part and parcel with many cameras nowadays that you can use to monitor your baby. But just a simple thing like ensuring the room isn't too hot or too cold is an easy way to reduce risk. Now, of course, we can go simple or we can go much more technical. Now, these days, smart tech is the thing. Um, and actually, there is a way to use smart tech for your baby. Now, something called an Owlet sock. I haven't personally used it, but I've read quite a lot about it. And what this effectively do or what this effectively does or tries to do is to monitor things like the baby's heart rate, oxygen level, and sleep, and this data can be live streamed to your phone via an app and it's um, a little thing that you put on the baby's foot. So of course, the theory is is that this can then alert you if the readings become abnormal, and that can prompt you to check in on the child. Now, some of the reviews have said this can cause extra anxiety. But other reviews have said, well, actually, this just made me feel a lot more reassured. So this seems very much like a personal preference. If you're the kind of person that loves lots of data and feels better from it, then maybe this is worth considering. Um, if not, might be worth a dodge. But certainly there is new technology out there that can increase your vigilance. Now, there's another thing called the movement monitor. I personally use this and absolutely loved it. And this is basically where a very, very sensitive pad, which detects things called micro-movements, is placed under the mattress, directly underneath where your baby sleeps. Now, the idea is that if your baby stops breathing and therefore the micro-movements cease, then an alarm will go off. Now, I put my personal favourite up on the site. Um, this is definitely not a rigorous, scientific-based recommendation, but it's just one I use. But again, it is a reminder um, that this should not be the only thing you rely on, these machines are definitely not perfect, but it certainly used to help me feel a little bit better. So finally, ultimately there is, as of yet, unfortunately no single known reason why SIDS occurs. So all we really have is these evidence-based risk factors that have been associated with higher risk. So it's just worth being aware and vigilant wherever you can and reducing these risks where we have the power to do so and hoping for the best. Now, the final bit of good news, and I do want to leave some some good news on what's a pretty tricky subject, is that overall the rates of SIDS has been coming down since the 80s. So let's just hope that this trend sticks. But for more on any of what we've talked about, check out betterbabies.com. Okay, so final topic today relates to one of our absolute favourite subjects, which is the gut microbiome. Now, the term paradigm shift, um, which is basically a breakthrough in thinking, is pretty pretty much well used. Um, the irony is, is that there are very few paradigm shifts in life, but actually... Um, We certainly believe, and I know we're not alone, um, that when it comes to the research behind the power of the gut and the microorganism within it and what this means for our health um, and longevity, it is looking like this term is certainly valid. Now we all know that the science in this area has exploded over the last decade and our knowledge really evolves in a very exciting way. and in fact, some of the latest stuff has been linked to a subject which, again, I can relate to as uh, having a baby. who used to th- be a bit sick pretty much after every feed regularly, much to my sister's disgust whenever I used to bring him round to her house on her new furniture. Um, but I know I'm not alone in an even worse problem um, that many of uh, people I know um, have had to deal with with young babies as colic something that can be not only miserable for the parents, but also miserable for the baby. Now, um, we're actually looking at some of the latest research around how the microbiome, and specifically probiotic strains, can be used in order to potentially reduce the incidence of this. So... This leads us to the question of probiotics as a whole. Because we talk a lot about the microbiome and we talk an awful lot about trying to make this healthier, the obvious question we typically get is, should you be taking probiotics? Now, the reality is, of course, um, because nothing in life is simple, is that it's not actually a simple answer. Now, why Um. firstly our understanding of what actually um, a healthy microbiome looks like is still very much evolving and interestingly enough everyone seems to have a different microbiome even identical twins which is interesting as it's of itself so at this stage we don't know what the perfect gut microbiome looks like all we do know is that having any any major imbalances or a particular low number of one species and a really high number of another or a very low diversity is not what you want. Now, secondly, the trouble with many probiotics that you can buy from a store is that basically it's like taking a multivitamin. So you don't really know what you have too much of or what you have too little of. Most of these probiotics are just a collection of some of the most common strains And so if you take it, it's a little bit like throwing mud at a wall. You're not quite sure what's needed and what's going to actually stick. So that's why on the whole, we're a little bit skeptical about broad-based recommending probiotic, probiotic supplements. So what is the answer? Well, as I said, for now, the science is absolutely still evolving, but there are some emerging pockets of research which link using very certain specific strains to certain positive outcomes. And actually, what it's increasingly looking like, and certainly very well respected medical journals like The Lancet, who've published a really interesting review of all this type of thing, which is again up on my website if you want to check it out, is suggesting that actually, when you can use very specific strains for specific issues, there can be positive effects. And babies having colic is no exception. So, what do we have in terms of data and what is the specific strain that you should be considering. Now, this report that was recently published in The Lancet, which once again is one of the leading medical review uh, or journals, is showing that a particular strain called Luteri, and I apologise to any of you microbiome specialists if I've pronounced that wrong, but again, it's up on the site, but this strain is getting a bit of attention. being potentially effective for both colic and regurgitation which as we said and many of us know are common issues in new babies so again we've got the full report and detail on the site but in case you don't want to read the full review which I don't blame you here are some of the key things to know number one the majority of the published articles on infant colic and probiotics or used as, as basically a therapeutic tool have actually shown that this strain was effective in reducing colic. Now this was mainly in breastfed infants so that's just one important point to note. Secondly there isn't a huge amount of research on the use of it as prevent as preventative basically using it from the beginning to try and prevent colic but two studies in particular have shown some positive data and one showed in particular that daily use from day three of life for 90 days significantly reduced crying time which and obviously crying is associated with colic in fact it was even demonstrated in one study to be safe for preterm babies and also shown to have a significant reduction in feeding intolerance now as always if your baby has colic the number one thing you do before trying probiotics or any supplement for that matter we keep banging on about is to talk to your doctor And you can, of course, feel free to show them this research that um, we've attached on the um, website from The Lancet. They obviously love it when patients do that. My doctor in particular uh, loves it when I come in or not. Um, But the research shows that actually, it may well be worth, at the very minimum, a discussion. Now, coming on to regurgitation or a baby just consistently throwing up after milk, of course, there can be many reasons for this. my baby was just a little bit sick, so it wasn't like he had a serious allergy. An allergy can be something to um, investigate. But some babies just really struggle to keep milk down. And if it's minor, it may well just be regurgitation. Once again, always consult your doctor. But this review did show data supporting the use of this particular strain in helping reduce episodes of regurgitation. And in fact, it did show some prevention during the first month. Once again, this is in breastfed babies. Now, the prophylactic use, again, i.e. trying to use it to prevent, when they looked at it from using from birth to three months, did, again, have quite meaningful impact. So, in fact, it reduced the number of episodes of regurgitation per day from around four and a half down to 2.9. So, pulling this all together, Let's be really clear and transparent. This is a hot area of science and it is evolving very quickly. We do not know everything yet and it's very important to remember this. But, as you can see here, there are pockets of interesting and supportive data emerging. Mainly, it's really around using in individual and strain-specific ways and ideally supervised. So, once again, always, always worth having a conversation with your doctor. There's no downside on that. But the research does suggest that if you have a baby with either colic or a baby that's struggling to keep milk down where it's not an allergy, it could be worth considering and having a discussion. So full report um, from The Lancet is actually up on the site as well as lots more. So check it out at betterbabies.com. So that concludes this week's weekly. We hope you've enjoyed it. And once again, we really, really, really urge you for any topics you would like to dig into to send over. Um, our way so reach out at sarah at um on our email or on our instagram at sarah betterbabies, or of course just click through to contact us on the website we always respond so um let us know and if you are enjoying this podcast please do give us a shout out and a review on um any of the major platforms we really appreciate it and we will see you next week